0: Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Mitchell Chase, with a fascinating biblical and theological exploration of Adam and Eve's fall from innocence in the book of Genesis.
1: Because Genesis 3 is not the story of God abandoning His people. It's a story of His image bearers turning from Him, and then in grace He pursues them, promises deliverance for them, clothes them with garments they didn't deserve, and even outside Eden. He will be their god and refuge.
0: Mitchell Chase, next. In his new book, Short of Glory, A Biblical and Theological Exploration of the Fall, seminary professor Dr. Mitchell Chase identifies biblical themes found in the third chapter of Genesis and explains why they're critical in understanding the biblical story and why they're crucial for believers today. Dr. Chase, tell us why the fall captured your attention to this extent.
1: For several years, I've been very entranced by Genesis 3 in particular, mm. one of the most pivotal chapters in the whole Bible because of everything comparing what, bef- what comes before uh, Genesis 3, what comes after Genesis 3, everything changes. And uh, then you have these intriguing figures uh, throughout the chapter. You have a... Uh, A man and a woman. Uh, You have a talking serpent. These trees in the midst of the garden. The the whole chapter is just brimming with intrigue, and uh, I wanted to write a chapter, uh, a book rather, that was going to reflect on this important chapter and really immerse myself in it. That in the writing process, I could try to unpack its content uh, with an eye toward plenty of other scriptures to help us along the way. And I'm I'm really glad that this project came to fruition.
0: Can you give us just a bit of an overview of Genesis chapter three, and then we'll kind of, if you will, drill down into it.
1: So Genesis 1 and 2 is creation, and Genesis 4, everything is broken and fallen. Mm. Genesis 3 tells us what happened. What is it that happened that brought about the things we now exist in, this broken world? In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are God's image bearers. They believe lies about God, His character, His word, His promises, His warnings. They believe lies about those things, and they defy the Lord. And in defying the Lord, uh, there are consequences. Ultimately, an exile out of Eden, and um, and therefore their story it becomes our story because the implications of the fall are so far-reaching; they affect our own personal lives.
0: What is the fall? Can you define it for us and kind of describe yeah. to us what happened?
1: When, when we um, think of a fall, we imagine that something was upright and then it descended. There was some kind of posture or state that is then compromised, and short of glory as a title is meant to try to capture this event we call the fall. Sometimes this is part of a larger paradigm of creation, fall, redemption, consummation, Mm. as people try to describe the whole big story of the Bible. But when Adam and Eve are rebelling against God, And they're alienated from the glorious presence of God in that sacred space of Eden. Um, The effect on them are effects that we have reverberating throughout our own uh, history of mankind. So that, in other words, the rebellion of the image bearers um, has had reverberations throughout the world with the consequences of sin and curse and death. And and so this, this word fall is trying to capture the distance spiritually uh, in terms of the glory for which we were made and the state of knowing God and communion with God that is possible in His grace. But the fall is the spiritual distance created by our sin, and now we are short of glory. Uh, the The language of the title is is I'm borrowing from Romans three, and Paul says that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and and so now we we realize what our life in Adam is characterized by. Uh, we have deep spiritual need. We're in a desperate condition where, where grace is our remedy and hope. And uh, apart from God's saving grace, our condition is one of corruption and sinfulness, physical death and spiritual condemnation, um, fall is not something that was like, oh, they tripped a bit. The fall is catastrophic. And that means the remedy must be surpassingly great if we're going to address the problem of sin.
0: Can you uh, go over for us? Many of us are going to be extremely familiar with this. Others, maybe not so much. The main characters in Genesis chapter 3 and uh, their roles.
1: In Genesis 3, the opening words introduce us to the one who would be the arch nemesis of God's people throughout the scriptures, the serpent. We're confirming that in Genesis 3, this is the devil named as such in Revelation uh, chapter 20. He is that ancient serpent, the devil. And um, in Revelation 12 and 20, the writer is echoing the identity and figure from Genesis 3. This is that same crafty figure. And um, Adam and Eve are the two image bearers in the story. They don't have children. They've been made in the image of God, and they are dwelling in covenant of marriage, and they are in communion with their Lord and Maker. But in Genesis 3, Eve first disbelieves the words of God through the tempting wiles of the serpent. And then her husband joins her in this, and in eating, they demonstrate rebellion against their maker, and in their shame, seek to cover themselves. Uh, Genesis 3, therefore, is um, a tragedy. It is uh, the catastrophic fall from the state of uh, blessing and glory for which they were made. And it ends with their exile in Genesis 3, 22 through 24, where they are driven out of this space in which they had dwelt with the Lord. Now they will dwell in a land and a world uh, affected by sin and corruption.
0: Where Eve was tempted, obviously, to partake of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which uh, I don't know if we've talked about it yet, but but that the serpent—actually, he, he deceived her. What was the nature of yes. that deception, and why was she so
1: seemingly easily deceived? The appearance of the tree would have definitely been alluring, just as every good and blessed thing in the garden was. Um, but. A specific prohibition had been given in Genesis 2. And, and so when the reader comes to Genesis 3, there's some information that's meant to inform the chapter. And in Genesis 2, uh, Adam is told that in the day the tree is eaten, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that is, uh, you shall surely die. And when, um, when Eve is concerned about the eating of this tree, uh, because of course uh, the Lord communes with both Adam and Eve, and Adam may have conveyed all this information to Eve, the serpent outright denies the consequence. And he says, you shall not surely die. Um, it, it is a, a, a subtle and even not so subtle rejection of what the Creator had established by his word and command to guide his image bearers and wisdom. In fact, the serpent so twists the words of God that the serpent portrays himself as the one having Eve's best interest at heart, rather than God, who of course will keep all of his own promises and never deceives and misleads his people. Um, The serpent's twisted words are believed. And when Eve sees this tree and is uh, captivated by it in a way that then is compelling to reach and to take, uh, the eating of this fruit is is a demonstration of what's going on in her heart. A disbelief in the promises of God a seizing of moral autonomy. Her husband joins her in this sin. Their eyes are opened. They are shamed. And uh, the Lord comes and draws them out of hiding in order that he might have them even admit and confess what they've done.
0: And so Adam uh, follows his his wife, who he would name later in the deception. And so was it at this exact moment that the fall occurred?
1: I would put it at that. When you um, look at the language of verse six, that they have both now eaten, and then their eyes are opened. I take that in Mm. verse seven to be the narrative description of a shift. Something has happened within them morally, spiritually, that is now going to have implications in the remainder of that sacred space. And then you see their reactions. They try to hide from the Lord as if you could. They then blame shift where Adam points to Eve and she points to the serpent. and, And all of a sudden we we look at what was going on in Genesis 2, and then we see the, the direction of things in Genesis 3, and we realize things have gone terribly wrong and very quickly.
0: And in, in this kind of behavior, this blame shifting, we, we see it in ourselves. We see it all around us. It's part of human nature, where people so often say, this goes back to the garden. That's what they're referring to.
1: This is so true. There's nothing new under the sun in this way. <laughs> we are a chip off the old block, yeah. our, our father Adam. Uh, and, and his wife Eve. It, it is the temptation of sinners to not take responsibility for their decisions and to point to something outside themselves as the reason for why they do what they do. And uh, li- life is complicated, I realize, and in the end, the Bible confirms that we are moral creatures who make decisions for which we are responsible. And um, Adam Adam not only implicated that it was Eve, he says it was the woman you gave me, a- as if not only not only eve had a role here but you know lord just remember who gave me eve mm. uh, you you gave me her and 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 this kind of abdication is abhorrent and uh, when we commit that same kind of pattern in our uh, responses uh, we're we're just like adam in that way trying to avoid responsibility uh, rather than owning what we've done
0: Well, my guest is Dr. Mitchell Chase. He uh, is a professor at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. We're talking about his new book, Short of Glory, A Biblical and Theological Exploration of the Fall. It's a a close look at Genesis chapter 3. And uh, some people have wondered this uh, and asked this, uh, and of course it's been answered through the years, but if Eve was the one that was first deceived and then Adam afterwards, why is this referred to in Scripture as Adam's sin?
1: Part of what we want to keep in mind in Genesis 2 and 3 is an order of creation. We're taught in Genesis 2 that Adam and Eve were not formed simultaneously. When when they are uh, alive, they are both embodied creatures, but Adam is formed first. And as the first formed creature, an image bearer of God, Adam is a, a head a new uh, a humanity has been made, and Adam is the federal head, the one who is the first creature and image bearer made by God. And in this way, he stands unique in contrast to Eve. Um, I think this is confirmed in the New Testament. You know, Paul says in Romans chapter 5 that Christ um, had been foreshadowed by the type which Adam served, because Adam had actions that implicated everyone in him. Christ performs actions that are a blessing toward everyone in him. But Christ is not contrasted with Eve's decisions in Genesis 3. Christ is contrasted in Romans 5 by the Apostle Paul with the works and deeds of Adam, and that Adam sinned, and that he was the disobedient man. And and so not only are we realizing from the order of creation in Genesis 2 that there's something special about Adam, the rest of Scripture confirms that that's the right reading of it.
0: Why is the effect of that sin on the entire human race.
1: So, in Romans chapter 5, we are given this idea that we have a corporate identity with Adam in Romans chapter 5, And as the first image bearer for him to be exiled out of Eden and for us to be born into a fallen world, it's as if the reality of the fall is not something that was going to be true just for Adam and then his progeny were going to have some sort of different experience or return to some state of innocence. Rather, humanity has been so marked by the catastrophe of the fall that the, the scriptures talk about us having a particular nature that is bent now away from the Lord. And um, this is a result of the corruption and stain of sin in the world. So in Romans chapter 5, sin spreads into the world and death through sin and death spreads to all men because all have sinned. We recognize that when we sin um, and we are guilty for our transgressions, it is not as if we just look at Adam and say, you know, I'm guilty simply because of what Adam did. The scripture here tells us in Romans 5, all have sinned. So Adam's sin my sin, guilt, transgression, corruption, sinful nature. Romans 5 treats all of these realities. We have to see the unique placement of Adam, and yet we are not given a pass as if in that same situation, the appeal and temptation wouldn't have also been compelling. Mm. We'll hear people say from time to time, don't we, Bill, like, well, if I were in the Garden of Eden or Mm. if Adam did that, I would have done differently and I would have known better. Uh, That's quite presuming. on our our own uh, savviness in that moment. Instead, um, we we should consider the plight in which we are in. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and God has brought a promise of a Messiah beginning in Genesis 3 that's been fulfilled in His Son.
0: And thank you for that. And kind of going back to to the sin, uh, part of that was the way that Satan deceived Adam and Eve, or perhaps the main part of it, was telling them the temptation was that they would be like God. If they mm. ate of that, right? I mean, that's the that's the kind of temptation that uh, still appeals to people today.
1: It, it does appeal, and I I understand that the role of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil would have been really appealing to Eve with that temptation, because who doesn't want to have some kind of knowledge that seems superhuman, transcendent even? The, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I don't take to have been a bad tree. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in the book, I argue we shouldn't think of the two trees as like, there's a good tree, the tree of life, then there's that bad tree. That binary, I don't think works in the text. Knowing good and evil is about wisdom. And and God is to be the one whose standard of his character informs and shapes shapes, um, the guidance and path of his people who are to reflect him, to be faithful image bearers under his wise rule. But if we we reject what God has commanded, we seize something for ourselves apart from his commandment, then we are trying to be God. And rather than receiving from God the life he has made us for, we've tried to reach for something that could never be ours.
0: Well, Well, Dr. Chase, how does... And you've given us some sort of foreshadowing of this. Understanding the fall, and and there's so many aspects to it, help us to understand, or at least better understand, our world and then ourselves.
1: Our cultural moment is filled with people who have all sorts of angst and concern about meaning in their lives, meaning in the world, shame that they feel and how it can be dealt with. Genesis 3 has a lot of explanatory power here. The Christian worldview, in other words, has something to say. Uh, The reason we're not silent is because the biblical story is the story of where everything has come from, what has gone wrong in the world, and what God has done about it. We have a sense, I think, within us that things are not right. There is a brokenness in the world, a fracturedness deeply within us, and you can listen to the people give testimonies about the wealth that they pursued and the sexual pleasure they ran after and the power they tried to accrue, things that just never satisfied them. Genesis 3 has something to say here, and it tells us we were made for God and that in rejecting the wisdom and word of God and the life we have been made for, We have pursued other things as we've exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and those things do not point us to truth, and those things do not satisfy our souls. We were made to know God. So what has gone wrong with the world is we have rebelled against our Creator. Genesis 3 has explanatory power because we would have contemporaries around you and me that would want to have discussions about what's the problem in humanity and what can be done about it, and um, the answer does not rely with with uh, looking deeply within ourselves for salvation. Rather, Genesis 3 tells us we have sinned and gone astray, and God who is gracious uh, has made us for himself and has sought us by grace to restore us in Christ.
0: Well, in that respect, how does understanding the fall help us to understand uh, the gospel and our need for redemption through Jesus?
1: If we tried to, to say to someone, you know, you should believe in Jesus. You should follow Jesus. They might find it interesting that he dies on a cross. And the message of the Christian is that he's risen from the dead on the third day. But if we don't explain to them their sinful condition and their need and the, the reason Jesus dies on the cross is to bear their sins. Um, the, perhaps the power of the cross is just going to be lost on them. And, and they might think, well, you know, you might think you need Jesus and, you know, good for you. If Jesus works for you, that's great. I've got something else. The fall tells us the reason for redemption. There is creation, fall, redemption, consummation. The fall is crucial in helping the biblical story meld together in a way that makes cohesive sense, the flow and unfolding nature of the story. We're a story people. And the story we want to tell is that we have been made for something, and sin has brought disruption and death to the world. But we need not fear, God has given us a savior. And and so I I think the fall is quite crucial to helping set up the glory of the cross. It comes up, I think, in in, uh, images like uh, diamonds and a black background, that if you want the glory of the cross to shine, the backdrop of the fall lights up the wonder of God's mercy. But if we don't have in mind the gravity of our, our fall and how we have fallen short of glory, then, then I don't think the cross and good news of the victory of Jesus is going to strike us in the way it should.
0: Obviously, the fall is a part of our faith. It's a part of Scripture. But from what you're saying, it's also really a part of history. It's a historical reality.
1: That's so true. You get this from the Old and New Testament storyline, which all flow out of this exile and an alienation from the, the presence of sacred space in Eden, Wh- which means uh, the fall is not just what happened to Adam and Eve. The fall is part of our shared history. It, it explains um, the subsequent rebellions and defiance and idolatry that characterizes human history so pervasively. Bill and and that means um, in order to understand our past, to rightly locate spiritual truths and concerns scripturally, we have to go back to the beginning of Genesis. Those early chapters are foundational for answering those questions and for setting up the biblical story that follows. It's like a it's like if you if you ignored Genesis 3, imagine going to a film, you have this important part of the movie showing up, but you're like, well, I'm low on popcorn. So you leave and then you come back and then maybe the rest of the movie, some of it makes sense, not all of it. Mm-hmm. You hear certain uh, dialogue and you see certain scenes and you think, I've really missed something. What's my missing piece? Genesis three is like that segment of the film. You you can't miss that, and the rest of the movie remain clear to you. There are things that Genesis three gives us explanatory power for, especially the need of redemption.
0: Now you called you just referred to the Garden of Eden as sacred space, and I'm wondering why mm-hmm. is that significant, and and uh, mm-hmm. and it actually has a, it kind of has a theme that continues throughout Scripture.
1: You could tell the whole story of the Bible with the language of sacred space, because <laughs> at the beginning, Adam and Eve dwell with the Lord in Eden. At the end of Revelation, God has transformed the new heavens and the new earth, and we will dwell with him. He our God and we his people forever. Uh, so book ending the whole Bible is the glorious theme of dwelling with God. That's all I mean by sacred space. Israel's history uh, had in, had uh, within it the construction of the temple under Solomon, prior to that in the days of Moses, they had the construction of the tabernacle. Those physical structures are echoes of what we lost in Eden. Because to approach the tabernacle or to approach the temple was was in a very important sense to approach the presence and glory of the Lord. Well, what are Adam and Eve enjoying in the Garden of Eden? Let's not imagine just rows of dirt that often come to mind when we think of gardens these days. Let's imagine instead a luscious environment of communal fellowship with their maker. This is a paradise. It really is. And and it is sacred because the rest of the world is not like Eden. Adam and Eve are exiled from Eden. And outside Eden is not like inside Eden. Therefore, Eden is is like a proto-temple in this way. It's a place that's like sanctuary. and, And in that case, it's sacred because God is with his people in a particular way.
0: Now, in Genesis chapter 3, which your book, Short of Glory, A Biblical and Theological Exploration of the Fall, is about, what are a few other major biblical themes which originated in mm. Genesis 3?
1: In Genesis 3.15, you have, you have what's been called the fountainhead of all messianic prophecy— as, as believers in the Lord Jesus, we are very interested in how the Old Testament prepares the way for the Lord. We are fascinated by that, the different patterns and prophecies that point to him. Well, where does all of that originate? Well, in Genesis 3:15, the serpent is promised a future defeat by the son of Eve, the son who will be victorious over the serpent and crush his head. And in Genesis 3:15, Not a lot of information is given, nothing about the tribe of Judah yet, nothing about the line of David yet, nothing about the town of Bethlehem yet. But all of those later layers will build upon this very early Messianic prophecy. So that's an important theme. And I'll throw you uh, one more out here. We have uh, this image of God clothing Adam and Eve Mm. with garments of skins. They tried to clothe themselves with leaves and... um, That seemed to be insufficient, given what the Lord does by the end of the chapter. They need their shame and life covered, and only God's covering will be sufficient for them. That seems to imply animal death. These garments are from skins. Well, what skins? Not human skins. uh, But likely the Israelites later reading Genesis would see a, a foreshadowing of their own sacrificial system in the tabernacle and temple. Here is God providing sacrifice for his people, covering them by his grace.
0: And how do we see Adam and Eve's temptation in Genesis chapter 3 later paralleled in the New Testament with Jesus' Mm. temptation also by Satan?
1: It is not often in the Old Testament where the devil himself is spoken of as directly approaching someone. Um, You imagine um, here in Genesis, you can think about, say, the book of Job, where in the beginning of Job, the evil one is a a figure. You can think about the book of Zachariah, where Satan is part of a vision. But it's not commonplace throughout the Old Testament for him to be just so named and directly approaching the scene. In in the New Testament, here is Jesus led by the Spirit in the wilderness. And the arch of God's people comes to him and tempts him. We're immediately reminded then of the earlier story with Adam, because here is Jesus, the last Adam. And we're, it, we're thinking about the first Adam and how the first Adam failed. Well, we're, we're, we really realize the high stakes then, because here's the Son of God. He's been prophesied, and now he's come. He's the incarnate one in the wilderness. And when Satan comes to him, Jesus overcomes every temptation. He does not succumb to the lies of the evil one. He actually returns to the word of God in every case and quotes scripture because Jesus believes the words of God. He is the very word of God incarnate. And uh, and that means we have a better Adam, one that we needed from the beginning, one whose life and death and resurrection and reign over all things is our refuge and hope as sinners. So the The temptation of Jesus matters because Jesus will not fail. He will show himself faithful in every regard.
0: And in terms of Genesis chapter 3, can you tell us the divine pronouncements of judgment or consequences for the man, the woman, and the serpent? And then, uh, of course, and you've touched on this, how these pronouncements also include a promise of victory.
1: Mm, yes. So I'll I'll end with the serpent to talk about the promise of victory um, in verses fourteen and fifteen. The serpent is addressed, but to move to the woman for a moment, he says that I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. It, there are these implications. For the close relationship she's going to enjoy in her life, the, the relationship with her husband and the relationship with her children. And we realize that she's been set up for relationships in this way from Genesis one. She's gonna be fruitful and multiply and uh and exercise dominion. And therefore, the the problem of sin is gonna be a problem that impacts her relationships. And the vocation of Adam is highlighted in verses 17 through 19, because he is a worker of the ground and yet. His vocation, while it will not be uh, removed, it will be rendered more difficult. Just as the woman's childbearing will have multiplied pain, in Adam's uh, the words spoken to him, uh, first it is the ground because of you, verse seventeen, thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you, in verse eighteen, and then in verse nineteen, no matter how much Adam works from. The dust you were taken to dust you shall return. And, and therefore, the the sinful uh, effects on relationships and vocation and the world God has made, all of that is, is noticed in seed form here. But I want to end with the language about the serpent and talking about these consequences. So I know this is out of order, but to the serpent in verses 14 and 15, the serpent's future defeat is depicted. And the son is the offspring of Eve who shall bruise the serpent's head, though the heel of the victor will be bruised, which means this victory will occur through suffering. I don't think we're to imagine a grass snake that's not poisonous. Rather, this uh, wily and vile serpent is, uh, is likely to be what's depicting uh, a, a, a venomous bite unto death. So if the heel is bitten and the snake's head is crushed, This is a victory through the suffering and death of the future son of Eve. Now that's a huge claim I'm trying to make, but I but I think the later Old Testament makes clear that's where this promise is going. And in seed form, we see it here. It's like an acorn and an oak tree. We see something small that will grow in size and significance across the storyline of the Old Testament. Messianic hope mixing in with this tragedy. Seeing it that way is going to matter for us as interpreters and readers, because the fall is a story of a sad situation, but mingled with it is the mercy and promise of God to deliver his people. And we need to affirm that, because Genesis 3 is not the story of God abandoning his people. It's a story of his image bearers turning from him, and then in grace, he pursues them, promises deliverance for them, clothes them with garments they didn't deserve, and even outside Eden, he will be their God and refuge.
0: You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary Professor, Dr. Mitchell Chase, author of Short of Glory, a biblical and theological exploration of the fall. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Francis Sue on coming to Christ as a mathematics student in college.
1: And it was maybe the first time that I had met Christians who seemed to be living their life according to a different measure of what life is about. Uh, And that was intriguing to me. It was uh, attractive in some
0: sense. That's tomorrow at the same time, right here on His People. Thanks for listening.